I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Cara Bromwin-Gurney-James. Cara, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a geophysicist. Um, What on earth does that mean? So basically, I use physics uh, and physics tools to look at um, environmental issues um, and uh, flows on the Earth's surface, but looking at it through like a physicist's lens. What kind of flows? So um, personally, I look at deep sea mining flows. So sort of um, fluid flows with lots of sediment mixed in them, which is basically super complex and something that the fluid dynamics modelers haven't quite got a grip on yet. So we take a step back and try and look at it um, in the a sort of big holistic overview. So by doing experiments, instead of getting very bugged down in like what every individual particle is doing. We can think about it on a geological scale or like, for example, a volcanic scale. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's um, it's kind of like uh, the herd mentality of sediments, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's kind of a good way of putting it. There's some people who do something called granular flow, which is imagine like a big sand dune or an avalanche um, and it acts like a fluid, right? With lots of little particles. Um, but personally, I do what we call two-phase flows or multi-phase flows. So I look at sort of fluid flows, like a river, for example, but imagine a river with loads of sand in it um, and the sand's all mixed in. That would be an example of a two-phase flow. So there's particles and there's also fluid. Like a really watery landslide. Exactly, yes. Or yeah, like a volcanic landslide, lahar, which is which is like a mud flow that comes out of volcanoes. Um, yeah, so there's basically loads of examples of this in geology and in uh, on the Earth's surface and on other planets and inside the Earth. <laughs> Not what I'd expect from a geologist or a geophysicist. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, my my background is in geology, and I basically I also had quite a strong background in maths and physics, and then. That I just found that this was the perfect pairing of of both of those things. Now you mentioned your background. Uh, I'm curious, where are you right now in your career? Uh, are you just starting out, or? Yeah, I would say I'm definitely just starting out. So I um, have finished my undergraduate degree. I've finished my master's degree, and I am two months into my PhD. So two months out of four, five, six years. <laughs> Who knows right now? But um, yeah, just started. Now, um, I'm curious, why geophysics? Why geology? What is it, is it about rocks and flows that uh, got you excited? Yeah, so um, my undergraduate degree was actually natural sciences. And in the first year, we had to do a few different sciences and maths, which is kind of unusual in the UK where I'm from. But I think it's actually what a lot of the undergraduate students here do, um, in Canada at least. They get to choose a load of different sciences 
which I think is way better because I had applied to do physics everywhere. And then I did natural sciences. And one of the modules I had to take was earth science. And I just loved it. Um, they took us on a field trip to Scotland and the whole outdoorsiness and the type of people that it brought into it. And um, the lecturers were so friendly and welcoming. Um, and uh, yeah, it really dragged me into this field because I was looking at particle physics and quantum physics. And the thing is, I found it really hard without, some people would disagree with me, but without a real world application to motivate myself. But now I can, for example, when you have to fill in forms for scholarships and stuff, they say, oh, how, what effect does your work have? How does it, how does it link back to the real world? And for me, that's so easy to answer because the work I'm doing is very motivated by real world problems, which is something that I really love about geophysics. There are some people who love to do science for the sake of science and exist in this uh, almost ethereal realm of just data and, and information. Um, but I'm definitely among the people who likes to have a tangible uh, reason for what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm always so impressed by, uh, I have loads of friends who are like, uh, astrophysicists but very sort of theoretical astrophysicists looking at things which I don't I can't even start to understand like how gravitational waves are bent around black holes and basically what they're doing is just pure maths and coding and they manage to stay so interested and so driven to do that and I think that's so impressive um, but yeah I definitely find for me I need something real world that I can link it back to and not that black holes aren't real world. They just don't affect my everyday life right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For the moment. <laughs> they don't change your route when you're going to the grocery store. Yes, exactly. Whereas here, you know, like all those, for an example, in BC, all those landslides that took out the roads when there were the floods. I hadn't moved here yet, but <laughs> heard about it because some of my friends got trapped. But that sort of thing is, is a really prime example of something that we would study as geophysicists. And if I'm not mistaken, the UK recently got hit with another one of those atmospheric rivers, right? Yeah, um, I hadn't t heard the term atmospheric river until I got here, but we would just call them big storms. <laughs> but I think they had like three storms in a row. Um, and here we had like uncharacteristically sunny weather. Everyone tells me it rains all the time here, but for me so far, it's been quite nice. Um, and I called my parents back home and they were like, well, it's nice for some. We've had like 120 mile per hour winds and um, trees falling down and just basically nonstop rain for like three weeks, I think. They had, I think they had three named storms in a row, like Storm Eunice or something. They choose the weirdest names for these storms. <laughs> It's suspicious. You in a big storm are never in the same place at exactly, the same time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, um, I know many particles uh, don't take a linear route. It's a little more circuitous. And I know uh, career paths can be the same. Uh, has your career path to this point been linear? Uh, you mentioned that you weren't um, always going to become a geophysicist, but have you faced any setbacks or any anything? Well, I feel like if you ask this to someone further on in their career, they'll have a much more interesting, like, circuitous route but I definitely had there's definitely been sort of um crossroads moments where I I could have ended up not doing this I'd say the the first was um the fact that um as I said when I first applied to university everywhere else I applied I applied for pure physics so if I hadn't got the place at my university then probably I would have been sat doing pure physics somewhere uh that's the first one the second is I actually um, was looking at going 
straight out of my master's into industry. And um, I had a, I had a um, summer placement all lined up, like a 10 week placement in Norway, which I was really, really excited for. And that was in summer of 2020. So <laughs> not sure if everyone remembers 2020, but um, that very much got canceled. And I lived with my parents for six months at home. <laughs> and then I, so I basically didn't get the taste of industry that I was hoping to get. And I, th I think that put me off because I was worried about going into a career that I hadn't tried out, that I wasn't interested in. Whereas I spent my last year doing my master's project, doing research, and I was loving it. And I just thought, yeah, one of the reasons I was looking to go into that, that field um, was to do with travel um, and like going to Norway. And I thought, well, if I do a PhD, I can also travel, which I definitely have now, <laughs> much further as well. Um, and zero regrets so far. So I think I made a good choice. And why Vancouver? Good question again. Um, it's actually quite funny. I emailed my master's supervisor probably around December in 2020. Um, and I said, hi, I've been really enjoying the work we're doing. I did apply to do a PhD with him as well, actually. Uh, but I said, um, I'm going to start applying for PhDs. Could you give me a list of people who do similar work to us uh, in Europe? <laughs> I said specifically in Europe. And he sent me back a list of seven names, five in the US and two in Canada. <laughs> so I basically was like, right, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Um, and I looked into all the people. I wasn't that interested in the US ones um, just because I think guns are scary, <laughs> um, uh, which may sound naive, but anyway. And uh, the other was in Edmonton. And I actually did call with him and he seemed like a really great supervisor, but he very kindly made it very clear how cold it was <laughs> and that it might be a big shock to the system. And I should really think about that before applying. Um, and then I called with Mark here, who's my supervisor, and we just got on really well straight away. Um, I really like his attitude to learning. I really like his attitude to supervising. He let me chat with, or he introduced me to all of his group, and they seemed super friendly, and they have been super friendly, so it's nice. It wasn't false advertisement. So yeah, it was mainly the group that that drew me here, um, and I wanted to get out of the UK. <laughs> They seem like a very a gregarious bunch and welcoming. Yeah, no, they're really, really great, actually. I've been settling in nicely. Now, I'm curious, in your short career, uh, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? No. <laughs> Basically <laughs> That's okay. not. Um, I'm hoping to, though. <laughs> Soon, maybe. Yeah. But so far, haven't had the chance. <laughs> what are you hoping to discover? What are you working on right now? So, yeah, I'm, I'm working on, as I said before, like deep sea mining, but... Um, deep sea mining might not be a, f a phrase people are familiar with. Um, people have generally heard of mining. <laughs> um, and basically on the seafloor, we already know that there are just huge chunks of metal, like, well, not even huge chunks, sort of tennis ball size chunks of metal just littering the ocean floor. Like pure metal? Um, so they're actually like, they're, well, they're basically pure metal. They're, so iron oxyhydroxides is the fancy term, but basically it's a lump of various different metals mixed together but there's a bit of iron in there but more importantly there's all these rare metals like manganese cobalt lithium 
which I don't know if those are ringing any bells, but they're basically all the metals that go into electric vehicles, like renewable technologies, um, electric uh, batteries. So um, very important, basically, for our sustainable transition. So the these are looking more and more uh, enticing to go and to go and mine. But as you can imagine, uh, when I say deep sea, I mean deep sea. I'm talking five to six kilometers of water. So the engineering challenges alone of getting these getting these blobs of metal up to the surface is pretty huge. But the thing that I look at is when they go and get them, they basically stir up all that sediment that's been sitting very peacefully on the seafloor. So they use like a big sort of remotely operated truck thing. They scoop up all this metal, send it up to the ship. But at the same time, they scoop up all this really fine particles and then they don't care about those particles. So they just dump them. And what I'm looking at is how awful that could be for the environment, basically. So it's kind of a double-edged sword because we're like, oh, we really need these metals. What a great like place that we could get them. But also it could end up being more disastrous than than it would be if we just had less electric vehicles, basically. <laughs> so we're actually doing this right now. So that's the thing. They haven't really started doing it, especially on a commercial scale. There's been a few test sites. Um, the, the area I look at mainly is um, called the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, uh, but they've tested it in a few other places. So what I'm doing right now is doing a lot of modeling um, and experiments in the lab, which allows us to like sort of imagine what it would be like if they did start doing it. But mainly what we would like to happen is that they don't start doing it before we've looked into how bad it could be. Because one of the one of the things here is you might say, oh, they could just test it and then we can have a look. But the thing is, these environments right at the deep sea is one of the calmest environments on Earth, actually. So it's very, very fine particles. Um, if you imagine shaking a snow globe, right, it takes a little while for those particles to fall down. And the smaller particles take longer to fall. Um, and in this deep sea, the particles are tiny, right? So it's it's almost like just having dust mixed into water. So there, um, one millimeter of sediment, so like a very small amount, can take on the order of a thousand years to settle. So if we're getting digging a meter deep and redistributing that, you're basically changing the environment for the from this lovely clear water with like these tiny little um, animals crawling around in, and you're changing it from that into basically like a dust storm so that could have really awful really awful impact on those little animals that are living there and you might say oh they're just like tiny worms we don't care but it's classic food chain right the next thing eats them and the next thing eats them um and that's just the local effects um uh, that's sort of the start of what my my phd project will look at but then we we look further into how those um, dust clouds and maybe even like the metal that gets reabsorbed into the water can then be like transported across the oceans in ocean currents um, and potentially even get to coastal regions and fisheries. But anyway, haven't looked at it yet. Sounds a bit doom and gloom, but you know, we just need to know so that we can make good make good predictions. Yeah, it sounds like a, a tremendous opportunity, but also uh tremendous risk as well yeah basically that that's the thing um it's got a high 
reward, but also high, yeah, high risk. And why are there balls of these rare metals down there? Were ancient Pacific pirates like firing balls of manganese at each other? Good question. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Um, there's there's lots of theories as to how they got there. Um, I think how they're formed, people tend to agree on. Really not my area though. Someone's going to call me out on this. But, but basically a lot of them, if you cut them open, have like a layered a layered structure inside um and i'm not sure if um there's there's a lot of ways that that forms in sedimentary structures we have this thing we call ooids or ulids which are like you get like a tiny bit of shell or something and then it rolls around on the seabed and various stuff accretes on the outside of it and it gets bigger and bigger so what we could be seeing is something like that but metallic why it's only metals that stick to them i I couldn't tell you. It's probably something to do with charge. <laughs> um, <laughs> not quite sure. But the main question that people have, I think, is the, these lumps, right? They're, they're very dense, heavy metals. And they just sit on top of this relatively less dense sediment. And they, they're big, so they've been forming for, we would guess, millions of years. So the main question is, how do they stay on top? We don't know. But they are on top, so... For for my pe- purposes, I just ignore how they're formed <laughs> and let someone else worry about that in their PhD. <laughs> Sounds like a metallic sn- uh, snowball. <laughs> yes, that is a perfect, perfect example. You'd have learned more about that if you'd gone to Edmonton. Ah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm happy with my choice here. <laughs> now, um, I'm curious. One of my favorite parts of these interviews has been field stories. And I know some people do most of the work in a lab. Um do you get out into the field very often? You mentioned that trip to Scotland. Yeah, um, for the moment, no plans of field work, which makes me very sad because, as I said, uh, it's kind of what drew me to geology. Um, I'm really hoping that I can, you know, make, well, I'm already making friends with other PhDs, but sometimes they need lab assistance. So I'm hoping I can be like, ah, I'm free all summer. I will come to Australia, Namibia, the Arctic, the Antarctic, you know wherever people end up going the Yukon even I would love to go <laughs> but I, I've definitely had some great field trips in the past and would love to have some more <laughs> it sounds like the field is this magical place where crazy things happen um do you have any crazy field stories you'd like to share well so like my main field trips that I've done the biggest one was a six-week trip to the north of Spain um I don't know if they do it in geology here, but in the UK, you have to do a mapping project, which basically means spending four to six weeks with one or two friends walking all over like a 10 kilometer squared area and um, looking at what the rocks are. (laughs) And then you basically note them all down on a map and then you work out where all the contacts are and you produce a geological map, um, which it's it's a pretty big task, but also it gives you an opportunity. You can go, or we could go wherever we wanted in the world. And for me, um, I had originally really wanted to go to Mongolia, but I was talked down by my friends because um, basically in Mongolia, there's like, A, it's very hard to get around. Uh, B, it can be quite dangerous for tourists. Um, and C, there were like no base maps. There was no information online about where would be good to go. So we were in danger of turning up somewhere and like the map literally just being all one color because we hadn't found anything. <laughs> Whereas in right. Spain, we had a very colorful map. Um, but yeah, that for us uh, was six weeks in like 
August and September, trekking around these mountains in Spain, walking up and down like a thousand kilometer hill, a thousand kilometer, a thousand meter tall hills every day. So my calves got very strong. Um, but I'd say some of the some of the highlights from that was like every day we'd stop for lunch and we would just like be basking in the sun on these big rocks. We'd just take like half hour, eat our sandwiches, just think about how great life was <laughs> and then get south back into the hills. Um, but I feel like field work is definitely what people would call type two fun because it's very tiring. Like you spend all day walking around. For us, we had to trek through these like thorn bushes all the time. Um, I, there was one point where my legs were definitely like more red scratches than they were like normal skin. <laughs> um, but I think looking back, it, it just was an incredible adventure. So yeah. That was the best one. <laughs> it's funny, as you're talking about them, all I can think about is the uh, the food options in both locations. Oh, yes, yes. The food was... Uh, so in Spain, especially where we were, um, it, it's not a touristy area at all. So like in touristy areas, yes, they still have tapas, but like it's very much paper plate and it ends up being quite expensive. And whereas um, in in like rural Spain you go to a bar and you order any drink. So like whether that's a beer or a tea or a coffee and it will come with a plate of food. Like that's what tapas is there at its heart. So I would like, we would go um, into the town nearby or the city nearby. And, you know, we would just go to, if it was like lunchtime-ish or morning and you went and got like a black coffee somewhere, they would give you like a, a slice of like Spanish omelet, like tortilla. And it was just this gorgeous, like eggy, potato-y, oozy mess or or they would just give you whatever they'd made that day so like the, the evening maybe you go for a glass of wine or something and they'll just bring you like a small pot of stew and some bread and like that doesn't cost anything like that you're not getting charged for that um and the wine itself was like one euro a glass so it ended up being a, a nice cheap <laughs> cheap trip actually because we were just making our own lunches spending all day on the mountain and then living off the free food that they gave us with our drinks so <laughs> One of the things the museum's been doing is um, educational recipes. And now I'm just imagining a mapping activity with a Spanish omelette or fluid dynamics and stew. <laughs> yes. Oh, brilliant. I could, I could talk about that for ages. Actually, a lot of the experiments we do use a lot of food related things. Like for me, I go down to our lab and what I'm doing is so water, I guess. I'm using a lot of and then salt, loads of salt, loads of um food dyes <laughs> so I feel a bit like a um a bit like a primary school scientist sometimes you know I'm there in the lab mixing batches of blue food coloring into salty water and then we even have like loads of corn syrup and golden syrup because if we want to create like a more viscous flow like lava or something instead of a river then the way to do that is just syrup <laughs> so I always come out of the lab very sticky with color color all over me <laughs> It's always funny. You start off your academic career in, in um, elementary school and teachers pull out these, you know, the food dye and uh, like you said, syrups and all that stuff. And then when you get to your PhD, you're just right back at it. Yeah. No, I love it. I think that's definitely one of my favorite parts about what I do is I'm, I'm living my primary school scientist dreams. <laughs> yeah, it's great. That's actually my next question. What is your favorite part of your work? Oh, it's definitely the lab. Yeah. I, I when I was looking for PhDs, I knew that I wanted like an experimental experimental aspect to it um, because I I do a lot of coding actually um, as I think most scientists do these days. A lot of my analysis is on the computer, so I, I definitely spend a lot of time in front of the screen. But 
from friends I know who work on pure um, numerical computational modeling, like if your code's not working, you're having a frustrating day, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. You just have to keep trying to make it work. But the thing I loved about the experimental work I did in my master's and what I'm now doing is say that I'm down in the lab and I'm messing around and, you know, time passes very quickly. I'm just filling up huge tanks with water and injecting stuff in and see what happens. Um, but then if something's not working and it's frustrating, like maybe all my pipes get blocked or something, well, then I'll be like, ah, oh, fine, I'll go and run some code. And then I'll spend a day or two doing that. And then uh, as always happens, it won't be working. And I'll be like, right back down to the lab. And then it allows you to have a bit of a diversity and a bit more like headspace between the two of them, I think. Um, so yeah, I think that's something that like people who do field work, that's their version of that. They do their field work and then they analyze it for a year or so. Then they go back in the field. Um, but yeah, that's my version with the lab. <laughs> it's always nice to have that escape when something's just not clicking in your mind. And Yeah, yeah. And I think also what a lot of what I do is very mathematical and often it, you can get caught up in the maths and, you know, there's loads of symbols on the page and you just get, you get bogged down in equations and you can forget what the real like meaning of it is and why you're doing it. And the great thing is you can go down in the lab and be like, right, when I'm using this math equation, what am I trying to describe? I'm trying to describe this thing. Okay, I've seen it, now I can picture it. Now I can link the two more in my head, which I think is really, it's really key. And also that's like one of the main things that Mark, my supervisor is very adamant about. He's very into knowing the real world applications of what you're talking about, which, which I think is a really great way of looking at things. Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um... You gotta have some clouds. So what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Good question. Right now, I think anyone who's done a PhD or even started a big project would be able to relate with this, but I've just started something that I'm gonna be doing for like four or five years that is completely my own work. Like it's if it doesn't get done, that's on me. <laughs> um, and right now it's weird turning up for the first day of your PhD because it's just this insurmountable hill of work that you're going to be doing and it's it's a bit like where do I start what I, what do I do <laughs> so I think that's definitely the challenging thing for me at the moment is having all these ideas like ideas for a full four years worth of project but then just being like oh okay so now I have to start <laughs> um yeah that's definitely the challenging bit at the moment. That diversity of work is a double-edged sword. Yeah. It gives you breathing space, but it also means you have to do it all. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, at the moment, I'm just trying to get more familiar with my topics, you know, reading a lot of papers. <laughs> um, I'm doing a few little courses um, to get me more familiar with, like, the math side of everything. Um, but yeah, hopefully by the time term finishes, I'll be ready to dive into getting my own stuff done. Uh, one thing that can be a challenge is um, belong to underrepresented communities. I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your work in any way? Yeah, well, I would identify as a woman in STEM, which um, I am very aware is becoming uh, a very good place to be. Like everything's getting a lot better, but you know, we're not there yet. We're not at full equality. Um, I'm actually the only girl in all of my graduate level classes, <laughs> which um, they're all quite STEM heavy. I'm doing one mechanical engineering one um, and one sort of fluid mechanics uh, geophysics one. But like personally, I, I find uh, 
most of my colleagues and like my peers, it's not an issue. Uh, in day-to-day life but sometimes you do look around and you're like oh this is not balanced (laughs) Um, but one of the great things about this department actually um, is the graduate students I think it's even 52% female or people identify as female and 48% male so pretty much I think it bobbles around 50% which is great Um, yeah so I think I personally I haven't encountered any huge issues with it I, I think for a lot of my career I've been in the minority in my classes. Um, But I I think I should definitely say that like, it's not impacted me that much. And like racial minorities and like disabled people hit a lot more barriers to access that I'm hoping I can be like an ally on and sort of use my voice as like a less underrepresented person to help um, work on that basically, diversity in the geosciences. That's a great perspective. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Now, you've kind of touched on this, but do you feel like geophysics is a really open and welcoming community or is it uh, a little more closed and insular and uh, looks after their own? I really feel like it's welcoming, Um, uh, especially earth sciences in general. I found every earth science department I've ever visited have just been, I think it comes from bringing in the sort of people who care about their surroundings and the sort of people who have a good work-life balance because they want to be outside in the field and... um, I think it really pulls in people who are welcoming and want more people to be to be a part of this. Um, I think geophysics, people from the outside might think less so because we are more of the, well, I, I think physics often can be quite a daunting field for people who don't feel comfortable in that um, mathma- mathematical world. Um, but uh, my group especially, very welcoming. Like if anyone wants to come along to the group meetings, feel free like we love to have people coming and asking us questions and sharing our research um but yeah i definitely think earth science is super welcoming and geophysics as well well it's like you said before um you're really hopeful that one of your uh colleagues will let you tag along to antarctica or australia well yeah so we sort of mix and match with the other geophysics groups we like are all in like a big office area and i have some friends one who is working on um glaciers so like antarctic glaciers and stuff and she's already got field seasons planned um and then i know that other members of my group have been to various volcanoes in like central america south america um which would just be incredible (laughs) currently i think the closest i'm gonna get is if i like ta maybe an undergraduate field course which i would also love to do but yeah if anyone's listening to this and needs a field assistant uh, hit me up <laughs> now you've made geophysics sound really exciting a great opportunity uh if anyone's listening to this what experiences or uh backgrounds uh would you recommend for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps so we actually have people from all different backgrounds in our group so one of my friends ruth she actually did um atmospheric science did she do atmospheric science no sorry astrophysics astrophysics at undergraduate um and she's now now doing an uh atmospheric science geophysics uh, master's course so it's all very similar applicable skills um one of the other girls doing a master's in the department she did engineering at undergraduate i know a lot of them did like pure physics so basically what what we're looking for is any sort of qualitative background so whether you did chemistry like transferring into geochemistry is very doable or maybe you did pure physics then a lot of um a lot of well all of geophysics pretty much is open to you we also have people doing pure maths computer science like uh, most science sciences these days can do with 
people doing machine learning and you know all of these things are very applicable to geosciences um that's kind of the great thing and my my master supervisor he wasn't even originally a any sort of geologist he was a he was a mathematician an applied mathematician and the thing is all these problems there's maths in them there's physics in them there's models there's computing so it's really broad um it's basically just choosing an application that's kind of earth-based or on another planet even <laughs> sounds like a very open uh, intellectually uh, field <laughs> yeah i would hope so <laughs> now um I, I know that doing a uh, master's degree or PhD can be really daunting and really, um, it can really get you down at points. Uh, and you, we all need some inspiration to pick us back up and recharge us. Uh, did you find anyone really inspiring you as you uh, did your studies? Yeah, um, I I have found a lot of lecturers to be inspiring. Um, some of my undergraduate lecturers, I think when you're in first or second year, you often you're a bit like still in that school mentality you just think of them as teachers but then by the time we got to third or fourth year you know we were doing field trips with them we were like much more we had small group classes we were like learning about their lives a bit more and I think some some of the people who inspired me were definitely some of the women professors in the department so there's um one uh professor I think she's a professor anyway maybe she's just like but um, at my undergraduate called Marie Edmonds, and she just is such an inspiration. She's been winning loads of awards for like best up and coming scientist in geosciences. Um, so she's actually a, she works on volcanoes. Um, and she also has, I think, two or maybe even three young children. She lives like an hour and a bit drive away from the university because like her, her husband or her partner um, lives in the other direction for work. And I just remember hearing that she was like, you know, driving an hour each way to work. And then she was supervising multiple students. She was an incredible lecturer. Um, and like, she had so little time, but if you emailed her and was like, I'm really struggling with this concept, she would fit you in. Like she would find you 15 minutes somewhere. And like, you have to be there for those 15 minutes because she would have something else time to help straight after. But I think just seeing how these people like managed to, to multitask so well across everything uh, and be there for like their kids and also being there in the department. Yeah, I think that was something that I found very inspiring. It's amazing. The university is really good at building up our, our profs and faculty as if they're, you know, almost gods. And then you see them every day and you realize you see them trip, you see them um, do silly things. And... Build their food over themselves at lunchtime. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> drink sour milk we're humans too <laughs> yeah exactly and it makes them all that more human and, and uh, inspiring i yeah. think yeah and i think that is the thing in in um earth sciences is like for me at least as i said that the lecturers were all really welcoming even in first year and at the same time i was doing physics classes and the physics lecturers you just had a feeling like if you asked a question they looked at you like oh why do i have to spend my time on you you know like they've felt very haughty like they had a lot going on and this is just my experience I'm sure there are loads of physics lecturers who love their students and are very excited to answer their questions and get them excited in it um but I just found there was a much more human aspect with going on field trips and just you know like one of my my first year field trips I was like 19 fresh fresh into fresh into education and like the lecturers were like, oh, two of us are going on a run in the morning. Does anyone want to come? Like asking these lecturers or professors asking random first year students if anyone wanted to go on a jog with them. Like it was great. <laughs> um, or like for a swim in the sea or anything. You know, it was just really inclusive, I found. Okay. Um, 
One of my last questions, um, you're at the beginning of your career, but I want you now to look toward the end of your career. What would you like to have as your legacy when you retire? Your professional legacy. My professional legacy. Okay, okay. I, I would just like to make some sort of useful discovery or maybe a useful model or something. It would be nice to have something that is used long after I'm gone, you know, in industry, like outside of just academic interest, um, for example, in deep sea mining or right now that the reason that I'm sort of working on this is they're drafting, they're drafting this legislation to try and mitigate environmental effects of deep sea mining. And like, if my research in some way, like changed their legislation to make it safer or something like that would be very satisfying, I think. Um, but you know, as always, it's doing the research, but then the next big challenge is actually getting someone to listen to it. So the Kara model. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. My last name's James. So I feel like if I call it like the James model, it's like a very common name. Yeah. Kara model. I don't know. We'll see. I'll have to brainstorm some different names. <laughs> the CJ model. CJ. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, who legislates deep sea mining? What are they call the International Seabed Authority, actually. It's actually kind of a big thing because, as I said, it's like right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And no one really thought about splitting up the seafloor as who owns this bit, who owns this bit. Um, so one of the issues they have is there's these huge fields of metal, but people are like, so who has the right to them? So International Seabed Authority is also trying to work on that and split them up. And then also there's all the Pacific Islanders being like, well, we're the closest land to this. Like you should be giving us money for this, which is very, very fair. Um, but yeah, who owns the seafloor? That's a... Uh, just humans trying to split everything up, you know? <laughs> Is that part of the UN or completely its own thing? I, I actually don't know. I think it's its own thing. Yeah, I think it's its own thing. Um, but yeah. I've talked about, or I've, I've asked about your personal legacy. Um, again, I want you to look to the future. Uh, I find that the world is changing at an ever um, increasing rate. Um, for one thing, I mean, Mining used to be that you dug a tunnel and now apparently we're going to the bottom of the ocean to mine and every field is changing at lightning speed. Uh, what changes do you see coming to your field and what advice would you have for young people uh, to anticipate some of those changes and get ahead of the curve? Yeah, so a lot of what I do, as I said, I'm doing experimental stuff. And the reason that we're doing that is because the computational stuff is just so complicated, like fluid dynamics. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> um, but like people are, computers are getting bigger and bigger, supercomputers, people are running bigger and bigger models. So like I could see in the next like 10, 20 years, modeling of this sort of thing being like much more effective. Um, so I would definitely say learn to code. <laughs> Everything's getting more and more computery. But remember, there is also opportunities if you're not a big fan of that sort of thing. Like you can come and mess around in our lab instead. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's what I see um moving moving forward in the future it's funny i remember my mother telling me about how uh it, you know when she was working in the 70s and 80s the computers were getting bigger and bigger and then when i was a kid they were getting smaller and smaller, smaller, and, smaller. and now they're getting yeah, exactly. bigger and bigger again so yeah well they have like whole supercomputing facilities now which is just like basically as far as i'm aware a building which is just all computer like it's all one computer well kara thank you um is there anything I missed? Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? No, I don't think so. That was, yeah, really nice to chat about what I'm doing. 
and maybe I can come back in five years and be like, this is what I did. Absolutely, you're always welcome. <laughs> I've saved the world from deep sea mining. <laughs> or with deep sea mining. Or with deep sea mining, exactly. That's a very, that's the optimistic way of looking at it. I need to remember both paths are an option. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for sharing your passion and your, your joy. No worries. Best of luck as you get started. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.